How useful and accurate are wearable smart devices when it comes to detecting atrial fibrillation? In the final episode of Critical Conversations on Atrial Fibrillation, a masterclass series, Drs. Sean Picorni and Emily P. Zeitler discuss the data behind consumer wearable devices and consider their utility in everyday clinical practice. Well, thank you everybody for joining our final episode of this masterclass series entitled Marching to Their Own Rhythm. How should we integrate consumer wearables into our AFib diagnosis and our AFib practice? Um, this is a, a juggernaut coming towards us, these wearable devices, so we need to be prepared for it. Um, their, their use is increasing dramatically, um, and it's creating quite a buzz among cardiologists and electrophysiologists and really um, all of us who treat patients um, uh, regularly in clinical practice. So um, let's jump in and figure out how we can, how we can deal with this. There, um, just to outline the, the, the issue, there are a variety of new screening options uh, for atrial fibrillation that are marketed and sold directly to patients outside of the patient-physician relationship. And this includes um, wearables that can go around your finger or your wrist or your chest or your arm. Um, the ability to uh, detect the heart rhythm with a single EDCG um, has gotten really quite remarkable uh, across a, a number of platforms. Um, and so we're going to uh, talk through some of these in, in a bit more detail. Um, I should also mention, in addition to the wearables, there is the uh, single lead ECG or six lead ECG um, from uh, consumer products like the Cardia Mobile, which is a handheld device. So we're going to talk through a, a bunch of these. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to diving into the data behind some of these wearable devices, but... Um, we can consider a clinical scenario that, that I think now is becoming increasingly familiar in all of our clinical practices. And so the scenario I'll, I'll put forward is a 66-year-old man who buys a smartwatch and um, he has a history of diabetes. He got the smartwatch uh, on his birthday and now he calls the office requesting an urgent appointment because his smartwatch has detected an irregular heart rhythm. So Emily, how much would you trust the the findings of that smartwatch? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, you know, this comes up all the time. Uh, a patient is gifted a smartwatch by their granddaughter or their grandson, and it's a lot of fun. And then they get an alert that they're having atrial fibrillation. Um, although you got one thing wrong in the case. It wasn't a phone call. It was definitely an inbox message, an in-basket message that came in with a PDF attached um, that, uh, that shows the rhythm. But you know, um, I, I put quite a bit of stock into this, in fact, especially if the patient is someone that I know and they have risk factors for atrial fibrillation, or maybe I know they, are, they do have atrial fibrillation. That's why they're my patient in the first place. So in an enriched population like that, in particular, a patient with known AFib or high risk of AFib, um, I'm pretty suspicious that if the watch says they've got AFib, they probably do. Yeah, I think I think that you know one of the things that I've seen is certainly things like PVCs can throw off watches, PACs can throw off um, watches. I do think that uh, to your point, when a patient has a tracing that they can show you and you act, you can actually see the tracing, oftentimes you can really determine whether they that truly was an arrhythmia. But but again, I, I think that you're absolutely right when you look across the the data. Really, the sensitivity and specificity of automatic AF detection is really quite high. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I have a, quite a lot of patients who use wearables for their AFib detection. Um, how do you incorporate that into your practice, Sean? Yeah, so I, I think it's really helpful. So I would say that for my patients who already have atrial fibrillation, we're trying to manage them and make sure that we're looking for recurrence. Many of those patients, I'll recommend either wearable devices or um, the single lead ECG device, the live core device, and I'll have patients that, that will like checking their rhythm once a day. You know what I encourage patients, as you mentioned, the inbox messages can become uh, vast in, in these patients that are constantly trying to share your information and we need a better way to integrate that data within our electronic health record system. I, what I recommend to patients is that if they find an abnormal value to send me a copy of the abnormal value and, and certainly if we can get a copy of that tracing, then, then as you said, I really do put a lot of stock into that and, it, and I will actually change the care plan exclusively based on that single tracing. If they get an alert on their device, but they don't necessarily have a tracing of it, then usually what I'll do is I'll actually have them wear a monitor at that point uh, where I want to actually try to understand what the arrhythmia is. Because again, it could be that it's frequent PACs, PVCs. We certainly want to understand whether it's atrial fibrillation versus atrial flood or not necessarily for the purposes of reducing stroke risk, but but for trying to figure out how we're going to um, treat our patients. And, and like you, I find that that again, that it's helpful for patients to actually put their strips into those MyChart messages because then they're a permanent part of the EHR. And then I can go back, and I've done this many times, go back months earlier to a patient message and say, oh, that's right, there was your episode uh, from your wearable device. That's really helpful. That's, that's a nice approach. Um, and, you know, I think I suspect that, that, like me, the reason that you do put the stock that you do into those tracings comes from uh, the Apple Heart Study in particular, which um, was a pretty incredible feat of, of, a, of trialism in the world where there were just hundreds of thousands of patients who were quick, quickly enrolled in a trial to test the effectiveness of um, the AFib detection algorithm. Um, and in fact, the, the algorithm was, was quite good, that 84% of notifications were concordant with atrial fibrillation, which is quite spectacular in an unselected population. So it gives us, I think that's what underlies both of our confidence in, um, in these alerts, specifically from the Apple Watch. But, but in fact, I think that that has a um, sort of a class effect on all of these wearables. So I think that about does it um, for talking about wearables, uh, but I, um, I really enjoyed talking through uh, this really exciting area with you, Sean. Yeah, thanks. Uh, this brings us really to the end of our discussion. Thank you, Emily, so much for your insights. And on behalf of Dr. Zeitler and myself, we hope that what you'll remember from this series is that atrial fibrillation is common and serious and primary care clinicians can play a key role in managing it through risk factor control, detecting it with methods that are easily used in the outpatient practice, assessing candidacy for treatment with easy to use online calculators or just the CHADS VAS score, and engaging patients in the decision-making to initiate them on anticoagulation. We need to remember that atrial fibrillation is most common in older patients, both men and women, and really all ethnic and racial backgrounds. Sometimes we may need to rely on clinical practice data to really drive our treatment decisions, but the balance of benefits and risks strongly favors benefits for nearly all patients in terms of anticoagulation. 
and increasingly high quality screening tools for atrial fibrillation are directly accessible to our patients and we need to be prepared to review and take appropriate action on these findings. We hope you found this series informative and useful for your clinical practice. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine for Physicians and by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education for Nurses and Pharmacists. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening to this episode. Don't forget to listen to the other episodes in this masterclass series and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WQZ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available online. This activity is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer Alliance.